so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Pre-pandemic parades. What? <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that one just, that one did not roll off the tongue at all. (laughs) Pre-pandemic parade, pre-pandemic parade, pre-pandemic parade, pre-pandemic parade. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me, not in the studio today, but virtually on this beautiful sunny day in Tennessee is the Brent Leatherwood. Yes, I I do prefer the definite article uh, before my name. Uh, Yes, the, it has a good ring to it. No, we can't be in studio, right? Because I mean, well, I definitely can't because I I have to be in quarantine this week. Unfortunately, one of our, one of our children uh, tested positive for COVID this week. And even though she is bouncing around the house and, and doing well right now, and everybody is well, uh, we are we are trying to play it safe and responsible and make sure that we don't inadvertently spread COVID-19 to anyone else. So yeah, coming to you from the home, home base. Yes, and you're going a little stir crazy. The adults in the house are going a little stir crazy. Yes, very much, <laughs> very stir crazy. And uh, attempting to once again do Zoom school will make you very crazy. Yes, and hopefully attempting to record this episode of the ERLC podcast does not also drive you crazy. So we'll see how it goes with our kiddos at home. But let's get into what's happening this week. First off, I want to highlight a couple pieces and important pieces that we have at ERLC.com because they touch on issues that are happening right now in our culture. The first piece is by Andrew T. Walker, our former colleague who's now at Southern Seminary, and it's titled, Does Justice or Profit Drive Abortion? What the Texas Heartbeat Act Will Reveal About the Abortion Industry. And if listeners remember, we've been talking about the Texas Heartbeat Act that pretty much outlaws abortion in Texas, and that was declined to be heard by the Supreme Court, but that's not the end, probably, of what we're going to hear about this legislation. We don't know if it will remain in effect. But one of our colleagues, including Andrew, brought up an important point. Abortions have pretty much ceased there. And so that raises the question, if abortions have ceased, why is that? If it's such a justice issue as abortion providers in the abortion lobby claims, why aren't they engaging in some form of civil disobedience to continue these abortions if it truly is a justice issue, if it truly is a right? But as Andrew points out, quote, there is no right to an abortion before God or before the Constitution. Legal rights are enacted to protect natural rights, and the right to abortion is not a natural right. God has not given us that right to kill 
a child, an unborn child, a preborn child. So what this reveals is that abortion is actually a profit driven industry. It is about money. It's not about caring about women. It's not about caring about children overall. It's about the money that you make from enacting these abortions. And it is a lot of money that this industry makes. And so I appreciate, Andrew, taking a look at this uh, from this particular angle to point out the abortion industry doesn't care about people made in the image of God, but cares about the money that can be made off of them. But as Christians, we care about people made in the image of God, these unborn babies, these women, these men involved in these vulnerable situations. And we want to do everything we can to protect their lives. Yeah. And, I, you know, Andrew focuses very much on that, you know, profit motive, like you were just saying, and, and he details something that we've said on this podcast plenty of times, and and as well as just the broader life work that we do at the RLC, which is the abortion industry, it is a predatory industry. It seeks out and finds women and families who are in crisis and, and therefore in vulnerable situations uh, who can be exploited and lures them into these abortion clinics. And they wrap it in the messaging of women's health. And they convince these mothers or these families that are admittedly, they're in a tough position, right? I mean, something unexpected has happened. Uh, a, A life has been created and they're not sure what to do. And they're preying upon them and they're trying to tell them that that life that they have created is actually less than a life. And therefore it can be extinguished and taken care of very easily. And this is an awesome opportunity for the church to step in and really help develop people's theology, whether they're in a crisis situation or not, but really help them understand the full complement of what scripture has to say about the inherent dignity of preborn lives and, and why those lives matter and why they deserve to be protected by the government. And that is our mantle to carry as Christians. And admittedly, admittedly, we haven't always carried it uh, well. We have pushed uh, women and families who get into these situations to the margin, uh, or we've just tried to ignore those issues. And instead, you know, I would submit that Scripture actually calls us to wrap our arms around those women and those families and support them and help them understand why bringing this life into the world is an important step. It's a God honoring step. And uh, just you know, remind them of the truth of Romans 8, 28. Uh, God will work all things, including this situation right now, uh, where you feel uh, like you're struggling. God will use this situation for the good of, of those who believe in him. And that that is absolutely uh, the truth. And so this is, a, this is a good piece. And this is obviously, this is going to be front of mind for us over the coming months as litigation certainly is uh, created about this particular Texas law, but then also as the oral arguments in the Dobbs Supreme Court case come before us uh, later this fall. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. And as you said, Brent, may we as believers be instruments of God working that good out of these hard, vulnerable situations. And also, you know, we as a people have bought into the lies of of the sexual revolution. And so we see the effects of that. And 
shame on us as a country for promoting this terrible industry. Shame on us for promoting, calling good what God says is evil. And the change is going to need to be a heart change, not just legislative change, but heart change, which I pray that the Lord would bring about. Next up, we're going to be talking about in the culture section, this important milestone, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And our colleague, Jill Wagner, put together a fascinating piece titled, Three SBC Leaders Reflect on 9-11. 20 years later, our call to love others, uphold religious liberty, and share the gospel remains. She interviewed Dr. Richard Land, who was the then president of the ERLC, Dr. James Merritt, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, And then Dr. Jerry Rankin, who was the president of the International Mission Board. And their reflections are so fascinating about where they were, how this changed uh, their leadership, what kind of effects this had on their ministries. And I just loved this last part of a quote by Dr. Jerry Rankin. He talks about how the Muslim world was kind of the last holdout in his time as far as having just barriers to the gospel. And he said, after 9-11, those started to crumble. And he says, now 20 years later, we should remember what's at stake, of course, people's eternities, and redouble our efforts to call out more missionaries and pray Muslims into the kingdom. After all, God loves them. Jesus died for them and his power is able to save them. And that is truly the message as believers that we need to remember. There are other messages, our our religious liberty is precious. It was amazing to see the patriotism, people coming together as Americans, what a gift it is to be Americans. But as believers, this is what's most important, calling people into the kingdom and offering the hope of the gospel. So we'll we'll tackle uh, some more reflections on 9-11 in uh, the culture section. But I just have to say, we we started talking about doing this piece, what, about, about a month ago. And just thinking through, would it be helpful to revisit this day from the perspective of former entity leaders within the SBC? And I thought, you know what, this, this could actually be pretty interesting. Uh, now that we've got the final piece, this is one of the most fascinating pieces of content I think I've ever seen us produce, at least since my time at the RLC. This is just to see the decision points that the SBC president, the president of the IMB, and uh, the president of the RLC at the time, the the immediate decision points that they had to to start going through in the aftermath of uh, this attack on the country was just it's just fascinating to me. I think it's really compelling. Uh, I love the fact that that Jill was able to elicit these sorts of answers from these leaders. And I think I think for anyone, particularly in our audience, but just in broader SBC life, if you're just semi-interested in history uh, within the SBC, you're just going to find yourself reading through this very quickly. I think I think the algorithm says it, it takes about nine minutes to read. You get through this very quickly uh, because it is so interesting. So I'm just, I am so pumped that our team was able to put this together. I think it's really helpful uh, for the SBC at this moment. And even if you're not interested in SBC history, it's still fascinating and still relevant as far as 
what it reminds us of as believers and what what this piece calls us to as believers. And then also just shout out to the Brent Leatherwood because it was his idea. So I know that's not what you were looking for, but I'm just saying credit is due to whom it is due. So you just needed to get that credit. So fascinating piece. Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is I come up with about a hundred different ideas a day and maybe one or two of them are worth pursuing. So, you know. Well, you know, I wasn't going to add that part, but you did. (laughs) 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 And then finally, we have an important piece that actually is going to tackle a topic that we are also going to discuss in the culture section by Matthew and Ashley Arbo titled, How Should Christians Think About Religious Exemptions for Vaccinations? So with talk of COVID-19 vaccines, talk of vaccination mandates uh, coming out of different places, including private sector, privately owned business, and public sectors run by the government. We want to help Christians think wisely about asking for a religious exemption from these vaccines. We have put out a ton of pieces about these vaccines, dispelling some of these myths and answering some of the very important questions and legitimate concerns that people have. And that's what we wanted to do with this piece as well. Matthew and Ashley, Matthew's an ethicist. Ashley is a lawyer. They have lots of experience with this. They've been getting lots of questions and been fielding them. And I just wanted to read some of their quotes because I think it, it helps us understand their piece. They say, in our experience, the reasons appealed to by some evangelicals for refusing vaccinations are not, strictly speaking, religious, but personal, philosophical, or political. They also say, and and this is what we would encourage, when appealing to religious liberty as the basis for an exemption, Christians should proceed carefully. Seeking a religious exemption should very clearly rest on apparent and applicable religious beliefs. So it's not something that we want to encourage you to do willy-nilly. We want you to think carefully about this, talk to your pastors, talk to people like Ashley who, who litigate this, and get some wisdom and some input, talk to your doctors. And they also pointed this out. It's important to remember that illegitimate appeals to religious liberty are perhaps the greatest threat to legal protections of religious liberty because they they weaken legal arguments for legitimate appeals in the future. So this piece just says, you know what? There will be legitimate appeals to religious liberty exemptions, but we want you to get wise counsel first and we want you to be cautious about seeking those out because we want to be able to preserve religious liberty and not weaken it for the future. That's right, because arguably, uh, religious liberty is at one of its strongest points in the entirety of American history right now. Uh, the jurisprudence on religious liberty, just the the way that the law is constructed in, in various states, uh, religious liberty is very strong right now, very robust. And we need to do all that we can as as Christians who are active in the public square and in these legal spaces to protect that robust sentiment for religious liberty. And in this moment, as we are still facing a public health crisis, where it is legitimate that government does have increased authority right now to protect citizens from this virus, uh, we need to be uh, very wise and careful as we seek Uh, religious liberty exemptions. And Lindsay, as you just said, there will be instances where uh, religious liberty exemptions are applicable. But we should note the vast majority of times, 
where people are seeking some sort of religious liberty exemption. If, for example, if you're a pastor, maybe working with an individual through this, if you really start digging deep down, you will find that an individual's objections to the vaccine are actually rooted in other areas. And those may be very legitimate, you know, personal preference, health concerns, political uh, objections. Those are things to be worked through. We should just be clear that those are not in and of themselves religious liberty. And look, you know, my prayer goes out to pastors and, and other individuals who are ministering to people in this moment, because it is a complex uh, talk. It, it's not the, not the easiest talk. I mean, you're, you're, you're wading through and navigating a lot of different variables, but we just need to approach this with both wisdom and, and humility. And I think this piece does a very good job of striking that balance. I'm glad that you pointed out it's a complex situation because I was going to say if if you are a, a pastor, a Christian leader, a Christian who is not swimming in these waters, these thought waters about religious liberty and legislation, litigation, and all of that, and and are unfamiliar with the terms and how things work, which that would be me if I wasn't surrounded by my ERLC colleagues who are more learned in these areas to help me understand, it can be very hard. So that's why we want to put together these pieces to help you and to help our listeners. And they help me. So I'm thankful to be able to do it. And I'm thankful for people like uh, the Arbos who would, out of their experience, write for us. We have a lot of other content, as I say, every week at our site. So please go and check that out. But for now, that's what's happening at ERLC.com. So moving on to our culture section this week, we've got a big anniversary that we are remembering. Brent, tell us what's going on in our world. That's right. Well, uh, it seems like all of the news outlets and think pieces that are out there this week are rightly focused on 20 years since the 9-11 attacks. And uh, to just kind of start us off, I, I found this piece pretty interesting from the Associated Press. And it points out that rebuilding at ground zero, uh, where the 9-11 attacks uh, occurred in New York City, is still going on 20 years later. So uh, this is from the AP. Two decades after its destruction in the September 11th attacks, the work to rebuild the World Trade Center complex remains incomplete. Two planned skyscrapers, a performing arts center, and a church are still unfinished at the site, which plays host Saturday to the annual ceremony honoring nearly 3,000 people killed in the attacks. Visitors to the commemoration will find a place that no longer has the feel of a construction zone, though even as the work continues. The long-delayed construction of the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church and National Shrine, replacing the only house of worship destroyed in the attacks, is now proceeding briskly after years of delay. The building, designed by architect Santiago Calatrava, is going up near the southeast corner of Ground Zero and will look down on the Memorial Plaza from a perch atop another building that holds the entrance to the World Trade Center's underground garage. Slated for completion next year, the church is surrounded by a small public park and features a Byzantine-style dome and marble cladding that can be lit from within. I just thought this was interesting, A, because one of the buildings that is remains to be finished is a, is a church, uh, so I thought that was interesting. And just the fact that there is still construction going on. And it just it just speaks, you know, it's easy to forget just the sheer destruction uh, that was caused by these attacks, particularly at the at the World Trade Center site. And um, it's just incredible 
that that this is still going on. So, Lindsay, let me let me ask this: Where were you uh, on nine eleven? What was your experience uh, that day? Well, I'll start off with you asked in our Slack channel if people had been to New York to see the World Trade Center, the towers, twin towers. And uh, I actually had just, I graduated high school May, 2001. And that summer, my mom took me and a friend on a trip to New York. So I was probably standing in the shadow of them, but just didn't even pay attention because, I mean, I didn't know anything about them. So little did we know months later, this horrible tragedy would happen. So I was a freshman at the University of Florida, Go Gators, gives me a chance to plug that. And I was going to the School of Journalism and Communications, which had this atrium. So it was open and had this atrium. And we had in the school these brand new high-tech flat screen TVs, which are so commonplace now. And of course, then they were not. I mean, it was like the cool thing. And people, it was probably eight something in the morning. People were gathered around the TVs. I was like, what's going on? And so I looked and saw what was happening and called my roommate. And I think I woke her up and then she just, she started crying. And so we went to class. I don't remember if we were dismissed. Maybe we were, but, and I don't really remember what I was doing the rest of the day. I'm sure watching the coverage, but it was just, it was wild that all of that was happening and it was surreal. But where I was when I found out is just seared into my mind. What about yourself? So I was in uh, our fraternity house at the University of Central Florida, and uh, my mom called twice in a row. And this was, you know, nine o'clock, just well, just before nine o'clock. And she said, "Hey, you need to you need to turn on the TV because it looks like a plane just flew into the World Trade Center." And I said, "Well, you know, mom, I mean, it it sounds like an accident, but you know, here I am, a sophomore in college, and." I don't want to be talking to my mom at nine o'clock in the morning. And so I think we hung up the phone and then she called back 10 minutes later and said, okay, you need to get up because a second plane uh, has now uh, hit the the World Trade Center. And so we got up, uh, all my other fraternity brothers in the house, got them up. And and honestly, we were glued to the TV for the remainder of the day. And because there was all, I mean, the rumor mill. I mean, I can't imagine 9-11 with Twitter uh, because the rumor mill was just everywhere. So we, you know, uh, we had uh, several fraternity brothers and, and friends who worked at uh, the Disney World complex. And there was all kinds of rumors that actually Disney World was a target because of its international uh, stature. And so, I mean, it was just, I just remember that day being wild and the very strong passions uh, I had several friends who uh, were uh, serving in the military. I mean, as as people can imagine, the passions of of young men, and you know, there was a strong sentiment of patriotism that uh, went through the country in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, and uh, we certainly were not immune to that. And uh, it was just, just gosh, what a what an amazing, terrifying day from all sorts of aspects. And so, yeah, so that's that's where I was on that day. Lindsay, I guess my next question is, you know, reflecting back, it's been 20 years. What do you think has changed either for the church or or culturally uh, in those 20 years? I mean, that's a good question. I was still a college student, a young, 
headstrong college student that thought I knew more than I actually did know. So um, I'm not sure that I had, I was thinking about it in the proper terms, but one of the things that I think of, and Dr. Land actually brought it up in our 9-11 piece, is travel, how drastically travel has changed as a result of 9-11. I did not realize, which this is a plug for our weekly lead article by our staff, and it's titled Four Ways 9-11 Changed America. And, you know, travel changed so drastically. And I didn't realize that before 9-11, security at airports was done by mainly private contractors or private businesses. And then it got taken over by the government. And the TSA was formed and all of that. So I just didn't even really remember that. And everything has just gotten so much more difficult to travel and complicated and a bit arduous, although that feels like a first world problem because we're actually able to fly on airplanes and be kept safe. But I do remember that. And that's one of the things that sticks out. The other thing that sticks out is how people flocked to church because they were just blindsided by this tragedy. This sense of security that we had and sense of being untouchable came crashing down. And so people were open to the gospel. People were open to God's word and to trying to get answers to the reality of evil in this world and what happens after you die. And so there was just an incredible ministry opportunity in those early days. And I remember article after article coming out by, you know, like people like John Piper and other people uh, just ministering to people. And it was pretty amazing to see. What about you, Brent? What sticks out to you about how our culture, how our churches have changed and what was happening during those days? Yeah. Well, I remember, uh, you know, at the time, since I was in college, I was going to the First Baptist Church of Oviedo, Florida, which is a great church. And so I I have many of the same impressions that you did, that the church was full uh, in the weeks and months after 9-11 because people were very scared. And it seemed like the threat of terrorism was almost an existential threat to the the country. And so that is certainly true. I I think, you know, it's actually something I said earlier. I I wonder what 9-11 would have been like had the world of Twitter and social media existed. I'm not sure that we would have seen uh, the kind of national unity that we had in in large parts of the American populace uh, following 9-11. And honestly, even even that unity was pretty fleeting uh, because by, honestly, by the election of 2004, uh, it was was largely gone, at least in the political uh, arena. And um, I, I would imagine had we had social media uh, with all of its drama, manufactured drama that people get into online, in many cases on issues that really are just not that important. I think that moment of national unity would have, that window would have been even smaller. And that's that's sad that this is where our culture is now 20 years later. And, you know, this isn't original to me, uh, Jonah Goldberg, who is uh, just an incredible uh, political commentator. He he noted this. He's like, it's, it is visually uh, something to think that this 20-year time frame began with uh, an attack on the World Trade Center and the awful images 
of people deciding they would rather jump off of those those buildings to their death. And this 20-year time frame ends with American planes taking off from Afghanistan and people being forced to jump off those planes. Like that's that is very deep. And I'm I'm not I'm I'm still processing because I, I just actually heard that this morning. Uh, his thoughts on that this morning, but he and and David French, who we've had on the podcast before, they were talking about 9-11 and some of their reflections. And um, that's on the latest Remnant podcast for those of you who would like to check out that conversation. But this is, you know, th- this 20-year period is is certainly going to be one that history looks back on with a lot of of interest because of the dramatic changes in culture that we've seen over the last 20 years. So. I was actually listening to that podcast this morning too and didn't get to finish it yet. And so I didn't hear that part. And that is striking. And it just reminds me as a Christian that, you know, we have the answers to these things in the sense that, well, it's striking that the 20 years began with the people jumping and then people plunging to their deaths. And it's like, what has changed in that time? How are we kind of back in the same place? And the reality is that we know that our our hearts are fallen and sinful, that humanity has fallen and sinful, and that no amount of national unity, no amount of uh, legislation, no amount of any of these things that are good can ultimately transform hearts and fix the fundamental problems that we have at the bottom of all these things of terrorism and and suffering and evil that only Jesus Christ come to earth as the God man and living a perfect life and dying the death that we as sinners deserved and raising again and putting our trust in him is the answer the fundamental answer to those problems he is the only one that can heal our sin sickness and transform our hearts and so that's what we herald and that's what we carry as believers. That's the hope that we get to carry and the truth that we get to carry. Everything else is, it's good, but it's just a Band-Aid. It's not the cure, you know? And so um, that's just what I wanted to speak to because it, that is so striking what you mentioned. And I'm thankful that we have the hope of Christ. Absolutely. Okay, well, so that's that's our kind of personal reflections on 9-11 there are a few other big stories this week, and both of them relate to vaccines. One comes from within the SBC. So Baptist Press has this, and it is about the International Mission Board with a new policy on vaccines. The IMB policy requires IMB missionaries and their children, ages 16 and older, to be vaccinated against COVID-19 prior to attending field personnel orientation, which takes place prior to their long-term field service. And IMB missionaries and their children ages 16 and older need to be vaccinated against COVID-19 prior to attending the two conferences that are mandatory for missionaries before their initial entry or return to a country of service. This policy is effective immediately, and it also is applied to staff members who must interact with field personnel as well. Uh, Dr. Paul Chitwood, who is the president of the IMB, said this, quote, we must make every wise decision even when a decision is exceptionally difficult that maintains our team members' access to the growing number of unreached peoples and places around the world where vaccines are required for entry, he said. We also want to do all we can to undergird our team members' spiritual and physical health 
to maximize our effectiveness as we serve Southern Baptists in our global gospel endeavors. Look, this is certainly going to be uh, a, something that a number of people will have opinions on on social media. But I have to say, this seems to be a very wise and prudent decision by the IMB to require these life-saving vaccines, not even so much for individual missionaries, but for the people that they are seeking to serve uh, around the globe. And, you know, I think we get kind of uh, lost in our American mindset uh, over, you know, oh, should we get this vaccine or that vaccine? You know, should we get a booster shot? We, we get lost in all these controversies. And that's because we have the luxury of Americans uh, of like debating these things. But we forget that there are large parts of the globe where they would do anything to get access to a vaccine right now uh, because this disease is continuing to ravage uh, the globe. And uh, the IMB is saying, hey, if we're going to seek to go and share the gospel uh, with these people, let's do so in a way that would ensure we are not infectious as we do so. And I'm just, I'm really thankful for this move. I think it's wise. I think it's prudent. And uh, I'm just thankful for Dr. Paul Chitwood and the call that he's made here. Well, and many of these places are third world countries, second world countries that don't have good health care. Can you imagine bringing whatever it is you might bring in, whether it's COVID or, or any of the other things that we are vaccinated against that I'm sure, I don't know the, the IMB's policy there, but I'm sure they have mandatory vaccinations and con- other countries do too. You bring that stuff in there and they can't, receive the the health care that they need, the medical stuff that they need. They don't have the supplies. And so that would just be a huge detriment, especially to sharing the gospel and would be very harmful to people. And um, I know people may have concerns about getting the vaccine, but then the reality is then they, they can choose to not move forward with the IMB and they could find somewhere else that may not require those vaccinations. So, and as you mentioned, Brent, multiple times, I wonder if this would be as as much of a controversy if we were not living in a social media age where we had Twitter and we're debating these things as kind of armchair experts. Um, this kind of just seems like common sense to be able to go to the nation. So yeah, I'm thankful for Dr. Chitwood's leadership and um, thankful for the lots of information that we have about the vaccine and, and the the safety of it thus far. And so, so I just pray that this is a, a decision that helps missionaries continue to take the good news of Jesus to the nations. Absolutely. Well, and the news of the IMB's policy uh, comes right before, on Thursday morning, the Biden administration announced they are going to mandate vaccines for all federal workers. So this comes to us from the Washington Post. President Biden is expected to sign an order on Thursday requiring all federal employees to be vaccinated without any option for regular coronavirus testing as an alternative to the mandate, according to a person familiar with the plans. The person spoke on the condition of anonymity ahead of the president's scheduled 5 p.m. remarks. The action affecting the estimated 2.1 million workers comes as Biden plans to outline, quote, a robust plan to stop the spread of the Delta variant and boost COVID-19 vaccinations, the White House said. It is expected to be a significant speech at a turning point for the United States, or hopes that vaccinations would ease the strain on hospitals and allow more social freedoms were dampened by the spread of the highly contagious variant. 
President Biden also plans to call for a global summit to be held during the U.N. General Assembly later this month to respond to the coronavirus crisis and boost vaccine supply to the developing world. So these two stories, in my mind, go really hand in hand. President Biden is is calling for this, this global summit to talk about boosting vaccine supply to the developing world. And as you said, Lindsay, the developing world is, in many cases, the exact place where a number of our missionaries are being called to serve. And uh, I think, in many ways, the IMB is is leading out uh, well here by, by saying, hey, if, if you want to be a missionary on the field and you want to seek to reach the lost in these international contexts, you need to be vaccinated. Yeah, well, this seems like what we expected President Biden to do anyway, so it's not surprising. Uh, I'll go back to the social media theme and say that it provides good fodder for Twitter, <laughs> so which is not really the real world, but still good fodder for Facebook too. And so we'll we'll see what people are thinking of this and and um, what kind of debates they're starting to have about this. But you know, our hospitals and our healthcare system does need something to give them relief so that people can receive the care that they need, whether it's for COVID or not for COVID. And so, because they are at a breaking point, knowing friends who are involved in the healthcare system, and they are absolutely exhausted. And so I hope that we, our country can make some wise decisions and uh, get to a place where we can provide them the relief that they need and people the care that they urgently need. That's right. Okay. So we've talked about a number of very heavy things Let's end the culture section with this because it's something I think a lot of us can look forward to. CNN is reporting this. The annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade will be a lot more like its old self in 2021 with a return to a more traditional route and the public lining the streets of Manhattan to watch. In 2020, the parade was for a TV-only crowd and the route was shortened to the area around the Macy's flagship store at the Herald Square. So, Lindsay, I don't know about you, but I always look forward to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade for two reasons. A, I love to see the end when Santa Claus makes his appearance for the official beginning of the holiday season. Although, if you're like me, you're actually already well into the Christmas celebrating season. And then the other reason I like to watch it is just in case it occurs on one of those days with high winds. Like maybe one of the balloons gets kind of like blown to the side. So those those are the things I tend to look for. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, it's just nostalgic for me because I grew up watching it with family. I'm trying to get my husband to get into it. He thinks it's the silliest thing ever that I would turn this on. But I'm going to get, I hope I'm going to get my kids into it. My daughter's old enough to appreciate the balloons. Last year, it was a good try, I will say, but without the people, the spectators, it just it just lost some of its luster. What is interesting, though, is that it's, you know, the North is behind us as far as the Delta variant goes. So that might be happening while the variant is booming in the Northeast. So we'll see what happens there. But yes, the Santa part at the end, you know, Brent, I don't really care about. I kind of like seeing the performances and things like that happening and just cooking. I like smelling the smells because usually I'm cooking during the parade or something like that. So I cannot wait. It's giving me all the feels for the fall season. That's right. Okay. Well, that is your look at this week in culture, Lindsay. And now it's time for the lunchroom where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. 
Brent, you're usually up first, but I'm going to go first this week since I'm uh, introducing and I can just make it happen like that. Well, let me tell you, I feel guilty for always talking about a show because I I feel like that shows that I don't do much with my life. Um, But I'm going to share a show again, just because maybe I don't do much with my life in the evenings. (laughs) It's just the way my husband and I unwind. We have been watching this show called Line of Duty. It's a British detective show, kind of, I think detective show, that focuses on the anti-corruption unit. And of course, they are investigating, as they call them, bent coppers, bent coppers, and within the police department. It is so good. It's got six seasons. It has lots of twists and turns. It sucks you in. And because it's a British show, it it only has like six episodes per season. So it's not like 24 episodes per season. Uh, So it's very doable, but very good. For the most part, it's clean language-wise is, you know, it's got some here and there. So those are just some disclaimers. It's so good, though. I highly recommend it. We are sucked in and we've been staying up way too late watching this show. And we work on our British accents as we're watching it. So there you have it. I'm not very good. No, 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 you're actually not. (laughs) Mine's a mixture of British, Scottish, Irish, and an accent that doesn't even exist. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't actually, if we had anyone on the show from those different or with those different accents, I don't think any of them would actually detect their accent in whatever it was you just attempted. Right. Well, you know what? No, they would not, <laughs> but oh well. <laughs> but I recommend the show, so check it out. Uh, well, I, you know what? I'm always up for a good show. I just have to figure out when to watch it in between watching West Wing. We've talked about this before, but I am I'm back on a huge West Wing kick right now. I have no idea why, you know, rest in peace or our, our, our former colleague Josh Wester, who always has it on in the background. He's not rest um, in peace, he's still alive. No, no, I know <laughs> I just meant for you know, in terms of our show here. Uh, but Josh always has it on in the background, which I, I love him for. But for whatever reason, I mean you can ask my wife, I have just had it on non-stop reason. And I've just been like sucked in. I, I was texting Josh the other day saying that one of these episodes, I think is just absolutely one of the most phenomenal pieces of television ever. So anyways, that's not what I'm bringing to the lunchroom. What I'm bringing to the lunchroom is kind of what we were talking about before. You know, you said you're, you're just ready for fall. Football is back. College football is back. And uh, this past Saturday, I was supposed to go over to Knoxville to see my beloved University of Tennessee Volunteers uh, get their first win of the college football season. Uh, but because we had one of our children under the weather, uh, decided not to, uh, and now proves, yeah, that was, that was wise for me to do so. But, uh, I I just, I, I know you're excited about your Gators, you know, and we don't really need to say much more about that, but it was so good just to see different games in different parts of the country. And so whether it was Gainesville or Champaign, Illinois, or Knoxville, Tennessee, just have students, fans packed out. It was just, gosh, it just felt like, okay, maybe we are slowly but surely getting back to a little bit of normal. So anyways, that's what I have to contribute. I'm just, I'm glad college football is back. Honestly, this is, this is my favorite sporting time of the year because baseball, the pennant races are in full effect and college football is back. And we don't have the NFL yet. 
uh, because I actually don't really like the NFL. So anyways, what say you, Lindsay Nicolay? Uh, I think the NFL kicks off tonight because we're recording on Thursday. So NFL is back. I love college football the best, but I, I love it too. I love to have it on in the background. I love to have the NFL on Sundays actually on in the background. I just I just like it. It's just fun. I'm glad it's back. My husband is not as enthusiastic, but I'm just, I'm working on him to like football and go Gators. That's all I have to say. Go Gators. It's great to be a Florida Gator. And it, I think, again, the normalcy it brings is so great, but then also the nostalgia of the season. Fall has come. The burrs have come. The burr months and we're on our way to Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it just, we need it. We need all the fuzzy feels that this season brings along. And so <laughs> we love it. College football, fall, it's here. Go get your pumpkin spice lattes or whatever. That's right. The, the, the months with R in them are back. And so that means it is also oyster season, which makes me, a guy that loves oysters, incredibly happy. Uh, but, uh, to your husband, Justin, and look, you know, I'll just say this to you because nobody else is listening. The way to turn him into a college football fan, just get him to a game, uh, down in Gainesville and, and he'll, he'll absolutely love it. Uh, a, a game at Florida is, is, is one of the special places to watch a game in college football. And that, that'll, that'll win him over. Now that said, I would like to intercede before you do that and take him to a game in Knoxville, uh, to, to kind of inoculate him, uh, before he goes to Gainesville, but Either way, I think he would. We could turn him into a college football fan. I think we can too. And uh, the snacks, because I'm mainly there for the snacks. That's why I go to to sporting events <laughs> to get pretzels <laughs> and the coke. <laughs> and so it's a great way to end this uh, this podcast. Go watch some college football. Watch some NFL. Go get a pretzel and a coke and kick your feet up and enjoy the beginning of the fall, even though we're not quite there yet. And just a reminder, you can find links to all of the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. And as always, we'll be back next week with more content. 